What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Keeping Stock Sneaker Podcast. And this week, we have another guest. He is the author of Sneakonomic Growth. In our episode today, we go through a large variety of the sneaker market as a whole, the economics behind it, the community behind it, the drivers, the opportunities, truly some fascinating insight that you aren't going to get from your traditional sneaker blog or social media. With all that being said, I hope you guys enjoy today's episode. If you do, make sure to follow and subscribe on your favorite platform, and let's get into it. The sneaker economy's growth is not the story of a small but passionate group of collectors that occasionally flip a pair or two at a tidy profit. It's the story of a full-blown industry, sprouted from an underground niche and into the mainstream to affect consumer retail as we know it. Billions of dollars in sneakers are changing hands on the secondary market annually, and sneaker marketplaces are raising smart investment money hand over the foot as the economy's reach widens. Today we speak with the author of Sneakonomic Growth, which examines the economic, financial, and competitive forces that shape the maturing but still nascent economy created by sneaker collecting. Welcome to the show, chartered financial analyst and author, Dylan Dietrich. How are you doing, Dylan? Doing well, Julian. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. No problem. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I just finished up the book about a month ago, and I flew through it. Typically, once I get hooked to a book, I can't stop, and that was one of those. So I, I applaud your efforts in uh, putting this together. I'm glad to hear it. Sounds like you're, you're the right type of audience that I was targeting. So I'll, always encouraging to get that feedback. It's interesting because we don't see a lot of literature and sneaker culture that is going into the back end of the market, the financial, the economics, and creating these relations. So what was your inspiration or what pushed you to create Sneakonomic Growth? Yeah, so it, it was really a twofold interest. On the one hand, I am a sneakerhead. I, I have been since high school, and my interest has only grown really exponentially over the past few years. Yeah, I'm really starting getting into all the different blogs, following different accounts on Instagram, etc., uh, striking out on sneakers app consistently, like the rest of it, the sneaker community. So, you know, as that interest really grew, I, I started seeing some things in the sneaker market that were very much kind of analogous to things that I was seeing in, in my day job. You know, I studied finance and marketing in, in college and have had a career in finance and investments since graduating. And what I realized was that there were so many dynamics in, in the sneaker market that were very comparable to things that I was seeing day to day at work. And I thought that there was a real opportunity to canonize some of what I was seeing and make some observations and share those with not only you know the sneakerhead who's who's interested in the sneaker market, both in terms of the brands and retail and you know secondary marketplaces, but also for kind of the outsider to the sneaker community who you know sees the headlines, sees these resale marketplaces fetching huge investment dollars, and and you know has seen the sneaker frenzy from afar. And wants to understand how it all works. So that was really kind of the impetus for for embarking on this project. You know, given my interest in, in the sneaker world and and my you know professional pursuits, I figured I was hopefully as well positioned as as anybody could be to kind of dive into the subject matter and you know, hopefully shed some light. I believe that's a very fascinating point when we're looking at this conglomeration or amalgamation of 
the specialty asset class that sneakers is beginning to creep into. And I could assume from your point of view, Dylan, and from mine in high school, we didn't look at sneakers that way. We were just buying what we liked, what caught our attention. And then as we became more informed, we understood the potential investment opportunities or the market behind it. And so if we take a step back to high school or when you first got interested into sneakers, what pushed you to start following those blogs and become interested in the sneaker culture as it was? really happened organically as a means of just trying to better position myself for releases that I was going to be interested in. Because what you come to realize pretty quickly in the sneaker game is that if you're not well informed, your your chances of you know actually getting the, the releases that you want, if they're ones that are in demand, are, are pretty slim. And so, you know, the interest kind of grew organically in that regard. And it was about, you know, just finding out where stuff was dropping, when it was dropping, how I could get to it you know, getting a sense for how much demand there was going to be and kind of tailoring my approach accordingly. And with the added dynamics of the resale marketplace becoming more prevalent and more people looking to, you know, make profits off of of limited releases, I figured that there were a lot of people doing the same things that I was doing, but doing so to better position themselves to, you know, get pairs in bulk and, and really flip them for a profit. And so you can kind of you can kind of see how that interest snowballs in, until you're basically you know waist deep in in the sneaker <laughs> and it's kind of uh, invading every aspect of life in a lot of ways. Exactly, and I think you painted a very vivid picture of how much information there is surrounding just a, a simple sneaker and how to get it and where to get it, and you can see that brief little line that ties it into this bigger economic portion that sneakers drive and the retail industry is driven with the growth of social media how you know we're going through the sneakers app after we found out where they're releasing our website and taking all that information and giving us the best opportunity to hopefully win in most cases we end up losing but it's very fascinating to see once you take a step back and look at it as a whole how much it moves very similar to a a financial market in some regards and so during that research process for your book, Sneakonomic Growth, what intersection of the financial market and sneakers did you find the most interesting going into uh, writing your book? Yeah, so one of the things that I, I reference in the book in an event that took place during the process of researching it was there was a, a restock of the uh, Sean Waterspoon uh, Air Max 97 uh, one which was one of the most highly sought after sneakers, uh, one of the f- most highly sought after releases a few years back. And w- what happened was those sneakers were restocked midsummer, kind of a, a, a shock drop, although there was uh, some indication that it was happening. And as soon as those, the indication of a, a restock hit the sneaker blogs, you saw the secondary market price in the impact of that pretty much immediately. You saw resale prices drop, you know, not not precipitously, but a hundred bucks, a couple hundred bucks at most sizes very quickly dropped, absorbed the news that was in the market and re- recovered from there. Um, certainly wasn't a permanent drop. But what it suggested to me was that, that this market's, you know, a lot more efficient than, than most people realize because, you know, that's something that you see happen 
in the stock market and in financial markets daily. You know, a piece of news hits the wire that affects a certain company, a certain stock, and the market reacts almost instantaneously, whether up or down. And that's what happened in this case here. So that was something that kind of made me feel like there was a lot of legitimacy to these parallels that I was trying to describe between financial markets and the sneaker market, uh, really an indication of, of greater maturity and greater efficiency than I think a lot of people realized, and perhaps even more than, than I realized at the time. I could see it being a, a very large surge of information once you start looking further and further into the rabbit hole. And as you mentioned, the Sean Watherspoon is another momentous sneaker that pushed, I think, sneaker culture again into a larger market as this sneaker bubble, as we'll talk about a little bit later, has grown and grown. But staying on the topic of the Watherspoons, have you had the chance to see his recent project with ASICs that is due to release in the next uh, few weeks or month or so? I have. Super exciting to see. And, you know, Hard to believe, but likely probably just as hyped, if not more so, um, given where we are in time than the than the Air Max release. I think his aesthetic is is super unique to to his to his personality, his style, and it's cool to see that kind of follow into this A6 release as well. It's always fun to see you know some of the brands that maybe don't get quite as much hype uh, involved in a collaboration that's going to you know draw as much attention as this one will. And I think it'll be a worthy worthy successor to the Air Max, to say the least, and with kind of an added degree of customization, it looks like. So really fun sneaker, excited to see it drop. You know, not not excited to undoubtedly not have a chance to get them, but that's the way it goes. Exactly. And I, I think the thing that's awesome about Watherspoon and what he's done is, as you mentioned, it's just truly him. It doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of outside influence pushing his design. And we could see that, yeah, in the first Air Max. And as we talk about the ASIC, I think it's interesting that we have the ability to have real-time access to the market of sneakers, whether it is StockX or GOAT, whatever it may be. How does the now public information of sneakers essentially tell you a better picture of the market from your background compared to the financial market? Because I mean, an example, I have an idea of if I want to go after the ASICs, the Sean Wather spoons, because I can look on StockX or resale secondary market and say, on average, these are probably selling for about 400 to $600 according to StockX as we're speaking right now. And I have access to that data. What uh, similarities do you see there between sneakers in the market? So first, the the widespread availability of information and data is really what has enabled the sneaker market to transform from more of a kind of underground niche market to one that's you know really growing more efficient that is you know kind of catering to the masses on a on a greater scale and you know functions a lot more effectively. It, it's the availability of sales data of live asks and bids of all of kind of the content that sneaker blogs are putting out and the engagement and interaction that those pieces and those posts are getting all of those things allow consumers to you know transact more confidently and, and to kind of maybe build an informational edge 
and, and really be educated in terms of what they're buying. And, and that wasn't really legitimately the case until only recently. And I think that's why you've seen these marketplaces grow as rapidly as they have. But on the topic of similarities and differences, what really makes the sneaker market different than the financial market is when a sneaker is released and it's one that is going to have a great deal of demand and a great deal of hype, that doesn't change the retail price. You know, the retail price is still going to be $120, $160, $200, whatever it may be kind of no matter what multiple of that it's going to go for on the secondary market. Now, compare and contrast that to an IPO, an initial public offering of stock. When a company is IPOing, it doesn't want to come to market at a price that is well below what kind of the general public will value the stock at, because that means that they're not raising as much money as they you know, otherwise could. And so there's kind of a real detriment to to leaving money on the table. You'd think that would be the case for sneakers as well. You'd think that if brands could get a certain amount of revenue from a release, they should be doing what they can to capture that. But not the case here because you know, ultimately the hype of limited releases are kind of a marketing and branding tool. And so in that regard, the market functions you know, quite differently from most others. That's a a valid point when you're talking about the exclusivity and the quantity in which these shoes are being released and the inability to fluctuate that initial offering. We know in other sectors, StockX has done it a few times actually with sneakers and IPOs or doing a Dutch style auction and finding what consumers are willing to pay. The one thing I, I really enjoyed was the portion in the book when you were talking about how Adidas had handled the Stan Smith and how they went about producing and the quantities in which they do so was something I found truly interesting because I had not heard that before. What was your thought process coming across how these brands such as Adidas, Nike, Jordan are handling the distribution, the stock and the quantities to maintain reputation and value of sneakers? One kind of fundamental principle that I operate off of and did so in, in writing and researching for the book is that the brands do know what they're doing. There are you know, no shortage of social media critics who would suggest that they're not launching products in the right way. And, and on a one release by one release basis, they may be right that it's not executed perfectly. But when you're thinking about broader strategy, you know, these brands have more access to data around their customers and their releases than we ever could. And so in that sense, you know, I think they're very well positioned to know when to and how to pull the levers of supply on these limited releases or kind of just the inline products to ensure that A, they're doing as well as they can be from a business perspective in the short term in terms of you know revenue growth and, and profits and earnings and the like, but B, not damaging the brand over the long term. And what's damaging to the brand long term is a heavy amount of discounting in clearance sales that due to a glut of supply that suggests that the brand isn't a premium brand, that it's not in demand. And so they're they're very careful, they're very cautious about how they pull those levers of supply. And I think it's served them well to this point. 
what becomes less clear is is what happens when you start relying only on hype as kind of a, a driver of business results rather than a, a deeper focus on storytelling, on design. I'm not to say they aren't focusing on those things, but you do begin to wonder if the sneaker community as a whole is a bit hype-focused, hype-centric, hype-driven at the moment. And if that will be to the detriment of the market as a whole in the kind of intermediate to long term. Right. And I would agree that at this point in time, sneaker culture and those involved in sneakers, it is very hype driven because attention span has shortened. Social media is moving quicker. We're getting access and early looks at sneakers faster and faster and have the ability to judge what product is going to be limited or worth a lot of money. You look at off-white, you see an early image and you go, that's a great colorway. People are going to want that. It's probably going to resell as opposed to seeing, you know, a Jordan 1 mid or just a regular inline shoe. You may say, up oh, onto the next one. And it's a very careful balance to not flood the market um, with something that could harm your reputation, as you mentioned, with that stock issue um, or going to clearance is maybe Nike's selling that shoe to a retailer such as Foot Locker and Foot Locker no longer wants to stock a certain lifestyle section because they're always going to clearance that can hurt in the long run. Or you're driving up this volume and there's no true value held behind it because it's always going to discount. You create an even larger bubble similar to what you alluded to is the I think it's epic, the the beanie bubble crisis or popping a little while ago. And I have to ask, what are your thoughts on this current bubble of sneakers? And in addition, the resurgence of trading cards? Yeah, so I think the sneaker bubble question is really an interesting one. And I think my opinion has even shifted a little bit, perhaps, since I published the book, which was February of 2019, which is that's when it was launched. Um, and at the time, my thesis was that we weren't in a bubble scenario in the sneaker market. What I did think was that there was a glut of uninformed resellers in the market. And what that was leading to was a kind of glut in supply. Of, of sneakers that weren't really moving, that were staying on the secondary market, they were still dead stock. And there were a lot of sneakers that were still on the secondary market that, that really weren't that special, that weren't going to you know, demand a lot of attention or higher prices. And so what I had predicted in the book in my thesis was that you were going to see a further separation between kind of the true hyped grails, which I believe still had room to go further up, mainly because there are there's there are new sources of demand with with kind of a greater greater wallet to kind of enter into the market and and continue to drive those prices up meanwhile those kind of less special sneakers that were being bought and traded by perhaps less informed resellers were going to see a mild deflation now i think that trend has kind of accelerated particularly recently, I think you're seeing it happen a, a lot quicker even than I expected, where you know the most hyped sneakers are still absolutely skyrocketing. But on, on the flip side, it's really never been a better time to buy what you like if what you like is not what's hyped. 
But what I think concerns me a little bit about the sneaker market right now is there seems to be a very high number of quote unquote hyped releases at the moment. And I think the storytelling for a lot of those releases is not strong enough to warrant some of the prices that they're getting. So I think in, in you know, the short to, to intermediate term, there's, there's still going to be some, some separating left to do. I think you're seeing very wide bid-ask spreads for a lot of those sneakers on the market right now, meaning that you know, sellers are setting very high prices and there isn't that eager a, a bid to kind of to buy them at those prices. And so ultimately that, that puts a downward pressure on, unless kind of the, the demand resurfaces. But I do think you know, there, there needs to be further separation of the wheat from the chaff, of the grails from the, the less desirable stuff. And I think we're going to find out that, that some of the things that appear to be grails based on their price on the secondary market right now really aren't. And when kind of the lights come on, people are going to, to realize that there wasn't much of a story behind some of those that'll impact the market. But you know, to your point, you look kind of across the really quote unquote alternative investing space if you look at memorabilia and you know despite the fact that we're in the midst of a global pandemic and you know there's an expectation for for hard economic times now and ahead you know that that market is flying higher than it has in in many many years so it it becomes a bit difficult to make to make sense of it all but what it definitely tells you is that there's absolutely an appetite from consumers to make their money work for them in ways that were previously thought of as you know highly untraditional and were all also often only available to you know the, the very wealthy fair very fair points it's interesting to see the commodity of sneakers or trading cards turning into what I would consider the equivalent of a very sought-after social status icon. And we're seeing, as you said, the bid-ask spread. I do notice that quite a bit when I'm looking at shoes. And the point I think you hit home the hardest, which resonated with me recently, was the art of storytelling. And I think as we've transitioned to a more faster-moving, ever-revolving news cycle, ad cycle, digital smartphones, etc., is that a lot of these big box brands have struggled to tell a good story with their releases. An example, we could say Watherspoon told a great story of how that came about. But then you're looking at other collaborations that have come along and may have just a lot of people maybe just asking why. And I think as you trickle down and we talk about the local retailers now and the importance of storytelling you had a great breakdown on how important that is to create that connection and tell that story to draw customers. Where in that retail space do you think storytelling plays the most important part? I think generally speaking, where a lot of... So so starting with kind of boutique retailers, these retailers are often very well connected to their communities. And that may just mean their local community or it may mean a, a community that they've kind of cultivated both locally and, and via their online social presence. And so I think where, where they tend to add the most value is with some of the smaller brands that are, are bringing you know, new models to, to the market. 
and those are collaborations that that you see have a an impact on the success or failure of kind of the inline models of, of that sneaker. You know, you look at New Balance. New Balance is you know seemingly uh, getting bigger every day, more more popular every day, but they've been master users of collaborations with you know boutique retailers, um, you know, like a Concepts here in Boston, for for example. Asics, you're seeing, you know, do a, a better and better job with collaborations. Why why go through these these retailers to you know execute on these product launches? It's because they're really good storytellers. They really understand the customer. They understand how to build excitement, build interest, and really connect a product to a customer. Because at its core, that's that's what's most important. Now, if you shift to some of the larger retailers. Like like the Foot Lockers and, and Champs of the world, you know they they have to kind of play a role and and add value for the larger brands like like a Nike in in storytelling and, and really owning the customer experience when somebody either sets foot in a you know Foot Locker store or or is on the website. The way that those retailers succeed, survive, thrive going into the future is to really add value in the storytelling process. And, you know, I, I think you've seen them do a, a pretty solid job of that and a solid job kind of revamping their stores and, and kind of their uh, the way they face customers to be more experiential, to be more customer centric. But at the end of the day, whether you're small or large, the most important thing is to add value by connecting customer to products, uh, often through storytelling. It has been a interesting transition to see these retailers that are starting to invest in technology to help the user experience within a store, whether it's augmented reality or virtual reality, and understanding and updating to the new wave of sneaker culture and the shopping experience and bringing people to stores as opposed to shopping online. And I think in that is a little hidden note that you touched on briefly with New Balance is I think New Balance does a very incredible job in terms of selecting their collaborations to hit a demographic that usually isn't marketed to by Nike or Adidas or Under Armour. And the more older or more matured sneaker fan base who still likes to have fun, but also needs a little comfort in their sneakers. And a portion of your writing alluded to the missed demographic of females in the sneaker community as it is always getting these female-oriented releases that they may not be looking for designated shoes for them. I think that's a huge missed opportunity as times move forward that retailers and brands aren't taking advantage of is finding that demographic that isn't traditionally been targeted to for the past 40 years and making that their own. Yeah, and it's funny though. Since since I wrote the book, I feel like that has improved measurably. I think there's still probably a, a long way to go, but I have certainly noticed a concerted effort from Nike in particular to introduce a lot more women's exclusive to the market. And they're not just you know shrink it and, and pink it sneakers they're they're really releases that would be you know sought after by uh, men and women alike you know you saw a lot of the, the memes around the recent off-white 4 release people trying to, to borrow their girlfriend's phones to, to use their sneakers app to get kind of a you know preferential place in line but 
No, I think that's good to see. I think what we're seeing is that uh, on the flip side, though, is that, you know, if there's a, a good women's exclusive release, people from both genders are still going to be chasing them. It's hard to solve for that. But, you know, again, I, I think steps are being taken in the right direction. Definitely still a long way to go. But I think there's there's a clear effort to better cater to the female sneakerhead. And that's that's positive. I think I think the brands recognize that, you know, business was being left on the table and the remedy was not going to be that difficult. And so it's it's you know refreshing to see. As someone who worked in retail for a little while, I found it interesting that that wasn't a larger push to include the female demographic a bit more or the kids demographic to an extent and i'll be curious to see over the next few years if nike who's done a great job as you mentioned recently they've done yes the the women and the female communities they're also working on making shoes more accessible for those with disabilities it's been fantastic you know i'm looking forward to when they start making or bringing back signature sneakers for female athletes, whether it's the WNBA or something more volleyball specific or whatever it may be to give them more options over time. And as that kind of section grows and the market continues to grow, where does the where do you find the value in the sneaker community when you are expressing it to your peers in the financial sector? It's somewhat difficult to draw parallels between the two. And, and the reason, when you think about the sneaker market, right, you can really only say you're looking at, at a sneaker and you're wondering if it's something you want to buy and hold and maybe sell down the road. You can really only make a directional bet, right? Do I think it's going to go up? Do I think it's going to go down? You, you may have some idea of magnitude, right? But it's actually really difficult pretty much impossible to, you know, credibly and legitimately set a price target because, you know, there are no underlying cash flows for a sneaker that you can base the valuation off of. There's no, you know, you know, multiples of retail price don't really matter as a valuation metric. And so all you can really do is get a get a feel for whether or not demand is going to continue to be larger than supply in the future. And you know the the value is subject to the whims of fashion and and the public's appetite for a certain sneaker at any given time. You know what's what's in favor now, and you know selling for two thousand dollars may be totally out of favor, and you know selling for a thousand or less six months down the road. And the opposite can be true as well. And so that's that's where it becomes trickier to think about them as an investment or you know an asset for for capital gain because that's it's not what they're designed to be and it's it's really not what they are because there's there's no real way to you know get to a valuation based on logic based on you know kind of rational thought and a, a clear process you can be directionally right, and certainly a lot of people are directionally right, but it still takes a you know thorough research, thorough understanding of the market, and most importantly, a willingness to accept the risk that things may turn the other way on you. Uh, there's there's zero guarantee whatsoever that things you know continue to go up. So you know there's a lot more uncertainty. I think that's that's something that you see kind of the very alternative investment community grappling with. 
as people become more interested in things like Rally Road or, or Masterworks or with Onus, in the case of Masterworks, there's a, a little bit more clarity and a little bit more history with the art market. But that's what makes these assets very alternative. It is not a traditional asset class. You brought together a great theme subliminally there that when you you first alluded to as fashion trends change, and I think you can see that with the transparency and data and real-time data we see today, where some of those sneakers that people were highly sought after or considered to be their grails aren't moving nearly as quickly because that's not the fashion sense today. You look at that data and you could look at a Nike Air Yeezy one, the first one, right? And you could see the price that it's going for, but no one's really seeking those out as much as they were four to five years ago. And then on the same spectrum, I think you have the ability to judge the the greater fool, so to speak, finding those who are still willing to pay that price or what may occur, which makes it a, a tough investment. And that parallel is hard because the greater fool theory at a certain point, it has an endpoint, which you allude to in the book. For those who don't know, Dylan, if you describe the greater fool theory, where it fits in to the sneaker market? Yeah, I think it's. I think it it can be extremely applicable to the sneaker market, to you know memorabilia markets. Again, because of what I was alluding to, that you know there are no underlying cash flows here that can give you kind of a, a greater degree of confidence around valuation. And, and what the greater fool theory is essentially is that it's when you buy an asset purely with the expectation that there will be somebody else that will come along to buy that asset from you at a higher price, um, that that person being the greater fool. And you know that kind of strategy can work. The issue is when you run out of greater fools to sell to, and that can happen at any time. I think today, for example, when you look at the sneaker market, one one pocket that is, you know, perhaps a, a bit concerning and maybe evidential of of that trend. You, you look at Nike Dunks uh, SBs right now. They were not in favor a few years ago. They are incredibly in favor right now, and it's very much a case of a rising tide lifting all boats. You know, you, you saw Travis Scott posted an Instagram of him wearing the Newcastle Dunk SBs a couple of days ago. And within hours, they were selling for multiples of what they were previously selling for on StockX. Now, is that something that you, you think can be sustainable? And are, are the people holding those sneakers now that bought them at you know $2,000 prices? Do they believe that they're going to be able to sell them for more for long? I'm not entirely convinced that some of those will be you know, worth more than they are right now, uh, two to three years from now, because they're just riding a massive, massive wave as a whole. And we've seen them be out of favor before. These things kind of tend to come and go in cycles. So you know, I, I think it's important to be cautious. I think it's important to not be too caught up in the present moment, because you know, as we've seen time and time again, these, these trends don't necessarily last. You look at not to pick on Nike, I'll, I'll kind of change gears a little bit. New Balance brought back the 992 this year, which is a great sneaker, a lot of great history, and, and one I like a lot. But you're seeing, you know, some collaborations and even some inline releases that did not seem that hyped when they when they released. They're trading for multiples of retail that I would have previously thought to be quite unlikely, and so 
Is that sustainable? I don't know. But my sense is that there are a lot of releases out there right now trading for pretty wild prices, and not all of them will be trading for those prices two to three years from now. So, you know, proceed with caution, as is always the case. The Travis Scott example is spot on, and it's fascinating in the current market in which people have the ability to pay thousands of dollars for a sneaker when, you know, you have a global pandemic and there's other maybe other priorities. And it's also interesting that in the short term, it could be a great investment if maybe you got those three months ago on a deal on eBay, and then you decided to sell them as you see the market upturn and that active management of your sneaker portfolio, so to speak. The interesting thing is that you allude to outside of fashion changing and trends and these waves flattening out and peaking is that sneakers are a, they have a lifespan. You can't plan to buy, you know, a dunk or a shoe in 2020 and expect in 2045 that it's going to be in the exact same condition and someone's going to want to buy that. If there isn't any storytelling behind it or any context behind it that we touched on earlier, you know, you can see why the original Air Jordans that Michael was wearing and why those prices shot up after the last dance. The story behind it is magnificent. It's enormous and it drives that value and that nostalgia. But when you look at these Newcastle dunks or a lot of these dunks, there's not a whole lot of story behind them or hype driving them after this wave flattens out. On the topic of dunks and storytelling, you look at these Grateful Dead dunks, which are you know among the most popular releases we've seen all year, selling for crazy, crazy multiples. And you know, it didn't really feel like anybody was getting the, the story behind them whatsoever. It kind of just felt like another case of high-profile celebrities being seated them, dunks being really popular, the design being pretty cool, colorways being cool, and away they went. And you know, long-term, has a foundational story been built? I'm not so sure. And it's it's funny. It's like the one person that they, they did seed product to, but it didn't get nearly enough coverage and could have really enhanced the story was Bill Walton, who is, you know, a very kind of an OG Nike athlete and a grateful dead fanatic and, you know, kind of a kind of a missed opportunity there in some regards. Exactly. Shout out Bill Walton, Portland legend. I think too, in the same regards, the Ben and Jerry's dunk while we stay on the topic, I don't think initially had a story behind it. But I think when we look back at dunks, the Ben and Jerry dunk in sneaker culture is going to end up representing a lot more than the shoe inadvertently because of their strong political statements at the time that may resonate with some. It's always interesting how those stories could go about over time. And I think you nailed on the head with the Grateful Dead is that I am somewhat aware of the Grateful Dead, but I feel like the messaging behind it wasn't strong enough to relate anything to me. And I think that older demographic that may have been interested, I don't think the story really got to them. I think it was always for the, you know, 18 to 26 year old who likes Nike shoes. And this is a fun, quirky colorway associated with a band that your parents or grandparents may have listened to. Yeah, I I think you nailed it. And I and, you know, the question becomes, you know, without a real foundational story, and I could be totally wrong, we could be totally wrong. But my sense is a few years down the road, story with those is like, oh yeah, dunks were really popular. They were pretty cool. They sold for a crazy amount. Now they, you know, they've kind of come back down to earth a little bit. That that would be my guess. Could be totally wrong. And so without spoiling any information, 
more than what we've divulged so far. What was your favorite portion in writing the book once you completed or a, a tidbit that you had learned that you found fascinating or intriguing? So, you know, when I initially set out to write the book, it was really going to be more so a full consideration of those parallels between financial markets and, and the sneaker market. And, and certainly that that was covered. But what became, you know, infinitely more interesting to me during the process of, of researching, during the process of writing it, was just the incredible ecosystem of entrepreneurship that's that's transpiring around the sneaker market in, in so many different ways. People, you know, seizing on this passion that they have for the for the sneaker world and getting out from a, a day job that they may not like very much to build a business that is somehow tangentially related to this market, whether it's, you know, sneaker cleaning, whether it's sneaker media, sneaker apps, sneaker sneaker games, there's just been you know, such a huge swelling of entrepreneurial spirit. You know, the resellers too, very entrepreneurial by nature, trying to figure out how how to make sneaker flipping into a viable business and, and learning a lot along the way that, you know, will be applied in, in various other ways, I'm sure. But, you know, that's what I was so floored by is just across the board, people being, you know, so extremely creative to, you know, approach this market with the business ideas that, you know, are maybe not even directly related, but just tangential and, and finding a way to create a, create kind of a living off of that, you know, solving problems, finding creative ways to do that and, you know, kind of following your passion to, to do that. So huge, a huge, huge amount of admiration for all the people that are, that are doing so. And that's what makes the sneaker market more mature, more efficient, more sophisticated and, you know, safer in a better place to transact. So, that was really kind of the main takeaway when when there are a group of people that have a shared passion the the entrepreneurial potential is absolutely massive so you know re- really cool to discover all the ways in which that spirit manifested uh in the process of writing and, and researching for the book that's one of the great things about sneakers that i think the barrier to entry is very low especially now with basically no international barriers to be able to pick up a sneaker for 80 bucks and as hard as, you know, finding a piece of art or making good play on an investment. If you're a high school student, you can work up and get that money and enter the market and then start, yeah, cleaning shoes, waiting in lines, reselling shoes, editing sneaker photos, sneaker blogs, and all that in between. And so as we kind of come to the end here, Dylan, I have a couple quick, fun questions for you and we'll see what your answers are. Fire away. All right. Would you rather high top sneakers or low top sneakers? Uh, low tops. A little, little bit easier to rock most of the time, but uh, with the pure exception of the Jordan 1. And if you, if you put a Jordan 1 in front of me, high top, I'm taking that every time. In terms of colorways, are you more for vibrant and loud? You know, your reds, greens, yellows, blues, or your more neutral, darker tones, grays, browns, blacks, and whites? I'm a loud and vibrant guy through and through. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's served me well in the buying what you like uh, arena because, you know, traditionally they haven't been super sought after and kind of more neutral stuff is having a moment. So keep the loud stuff coming. It's about uh, you know, individuality and personality. Are there any pairs of shoes that you own and will never wear? Oh, 
I don't want to say never say never. And, and I, I don't have any that are just sitting in boxes because I intend to resell them. But you know, one that comes to mind that's just sitting in the box, I just can't bring myself to wear them because I just I don't want to start that kind of ticking time clock of a sneaker's finite life, even though, you know, they, they can kind of uh, meet their end slowly just sitting in the box as well. But when Concepts and New Balance re-released what was called the Kennedy originally dubbed the Hyannis when it was re-released a few years back, managed to grab the the blue colorway, which was the, the OG, and one of the, the sneakers that really kind of got me into the space in the first place. Certainly didn't uh, wasn't fortunate enough to grab the Kennedys the first time around, but uh, haven't gotten the, the Hyannis pair. Haven't gotten them out of the box yet. The day will come. I don't know when the day will be. I will build up the courage, though. That's awesome. Uh, one of the sneak colorways of the uh, of the decade there. And lastly, Dylan, um, as we end this podcast, where can the listeners find you, and you know how can they get their hands on Sneakonomic Growth? Yeah, Sneakonomic Growth is available on Amazon. Bezos is is killing me on the royalties, but the products out there, so that's good. Uh, yeah, so you can find it in both Kindle format and paperback. I am on social at Sneakonomic Growth on Instagram and Twitter. You can also search my name, Dylan Dietrich, and should pop up that way as well. I'm trying to keep the insights coming on Instagram, keep kind of the Sneakonomics uh, fresh as things evolve. It's, it's crazy how quickly they've evolved even since publishing, but it's it's been a fun ride. I appreciate your time, Dylan. As always, all of Dylan's information will be in the show notes below so you can follow up with him. I would, if you're into sneakers, and I mean you are, you're listening to this podcast, I would suggest picking up the book. It's a great read, even if you have advanced knowledge like myself or you're a beginner, there's definitely tidbits you'll learn along the way. Dylan, I truly appreciate your time. I'm looking forward to when you start wearing those new balance in the future. You and me both. Thanks a lot for having me uh, having me on, Julian. It was, it was a lot of fun. The show is great, so I'll be uh, I'll be listening to Keeping Stock well into the future, I'm sure, and uh, wishing you all the best. There you have it, Dylan Dietrich of Sneakonomic Growth. It's available on Amazon. It's on paperback and Kindle. At this point in time, it's only sixteen dollars on paperback in the United States, so under twenty bucks, under ten dollars on the Kindle. If you do have one, I definitely recommend checking it out if you have a time. Fast, fun, and easy read to dive further into the sneaker culture. As mentioned, all of his credentials and links are in the show notes below. I'd love to hear your feedback on today's information, if you've heard it before or if it was completely eye-opening. I thank you guys for listening and tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you enjoyed the episode, and we'll catch you next week.